0: Of the making sense podcast this is sam harris okay i have a town hall event in los angeles coming up in may may 9th at a currently undisclosed location uh, this is going to be at a small club i think it seats 200 a more intimate venue than normal and we're going to broadcast this town hall online and i'm hopeful the video experience is going to be good It's going to be an Ask Me Anything episode of the podcast, but rather than take questions merely from you all online, I'm expecting attendees to bring their questions, though I will take some online questions, and I'll get a chance to think out loud. So I'm looking forward to that. This is an experiment. If you are a subscriber to the podcast, that is, a supporter, you should have already received an email about this event, and you'll receive another email on Friday the 26th when tickets go on sale, and those tickets will go very quickly. So if you live in Los Angeles and want to attend live, I would jump on that. But if you're not in LA or can't attend the live event, you'll find the video in your subscriber content online at samharris.org. There's also going to be a policy change coming soon here where you will need an active subscription. To get content behind my paywall. The policy with respect to free hasn't changed. If you really can't afford to support the show, I don't want money to be the reason why you can't get access to my content. As you know, this is also true on the Waking Up app, but we need to move to an active subscription model here. So those of you who gave $1 once when that was possible, or those of you who supported the show on Patreon, we'll need to start a monthly subscription through samharris.org, or send us an email at info at telling us that you can't afford to, and then we'll open a free account for you. Okay, so today I am re-releasing an old episode, which unfortunately is highly relevant this week. The episode was originally 43 of the podcast, titled, What Do Jihadists Really Want? And the original release date was August 17th, 2016. So, a little more than two and a half years ago. And in the aftermath of the recent bombings in Sri Lanka, I decided to listen to it just to see if there was something more I needed to say to make sense of the current situation. And I find that there isn't. I did about as good a job as I can in trying to get you, the listener, to see jihadism the way I do and the way I believe jihadists see themselves. I must say I'm also given further motivation having just been at TED and having had the usual collisions with the wokeness there. It was a great conference. I had a lot of fun, but I had one meeting with a Muslim apologist, I would call her, who I won't name. It was a private meeting organized by Chris Anderson. And he had some hopes that we would have a meeting of the minds, I think. We didn't have much of one. It wasn't a waste of time, but it was also an experience where I confronted all of the usual denials and non-sequiturs. One encounters when one tries to say something rational about Islam at this moment in history. So it was a frustrating experience and now punctuated by an enormous atrocity. I think the current count is 350 have died in Sri Lanka. And the details we have so far prove yet again that the problem is not a matter of economics or politics, it's belief. These suicide bombers were middle-class and mostly well-educated. They had other opportunities. The problem was that they were convinced of the truth of specific religious ideas. Ideas that are not in the Anglican Communion, or in Mormonism, or in Scientology. All I ever argue for on this topic is that we acknowledge the power of ideas. And. Islam has more than its fair share of bad ones, so if you want to confront the problem of jihadism and Islamism, as we really all must, and as moderate Muslims the world over must, you have to be honest about these things, and what I encounter among apologists and among all too woke leftists is, to some degree, self-deception, no doubt, but it is, with disconcerting frequency, a commitment to actually lying about the problem and to defaming anyone who won't lie about it. So I'm re-upping this podcast because if I had to say this all again, I don't think I would change a word, and all of these observations are once again relevant. So, what do jihadists really want? Well, as I said in my last podcast, ISIS just released a remarkable document in the latest issue of their magazine, Dabiq, which is named after a city in Syria where they believe they will wage a final battle against a crusader army and usher in the end times. So I promised to discuss that in a separate podcast, which I'll do now. The whole magazine is fairly astonishing. I'll provide a link to a PDF on my blog, but I warn you that some of the pictures are disturbing. There's a photograph of a man getting his head cut off, which leaves absolutely nothing to the imagination. But I'm going to read some relevant parts of the magazine on this podcast. And one thing that should alarm you is how well written it is. The the writing in this magazine is actually better than you'll find in your average Salon article or on The Intercept. In fact, it's as well written as Fawaz Gurji's new book on ISIS, published by Princeton University Press. And and the copy editing in this magazine is actually better than in that book. I'm not exaggerating. I spotted a typo in the Gurgis book in the first few pages. I haven't seen any typos in this copy of Dabiq. And it may sound like a strange thing to say, but good writing and good copy editing is a very bad sign. It tells you something about the caliber of people they've managed to recruit. The article I'm going to focus on and read in its entirety, is entitled, Why We Hate You and Why We Fight You. And I think it will inevitably be said that there's something self-serving about my reading this to you, because it confirms more or less everything I've been saying about jihadism for the last 15 years. And perhaps there is something a little self-serving about it, because as you know, I've been pilloried for my views on this topic for about as long. But this really isn't a matter of my just saying, I told you so. I actually think it's important that if you have any lingering doubts about whether or not ISIS and jihadism generally is a religious phenomenon, that you clarify those doubts and just listen to what members of ISIS have to say for themselves. But before I get into that article in particular, here is what I think any honest reader will get from this magazine as a whole. The fundamental concerns of these people are theological. The claim they want to press and substantiate in nearly every paragraph and which motivates everything they do is a claim about the exclusive legitimacy of their religion. Every other way of life leads to hell. They really believe this. Now, most of you, I would wager, have no idea what it's like to believe that either paradise or an eternity in fire awaits you after death. And because you haven't ever believed this, You probably waste a lot of fuel wondering whether anyone actually does. I want to recommend that you stop doing that, and simply accept that jihadists believe what they say they believe. Just accept it as a working assumption. If you if you do that, you will suddenly find that everything they do, including suicide bombing, makes perfect sense. So I recommend that you simply listen to what these people have to say for themselves, as you would any other people who are making extreme sacrifices towards some end. The disposition not to do this is really strange. Let's say you went to a medical school and you asked students why they were pursuing careers in medicine. How disposed would you be to second-guess their answers? I mean, what they're doing is fairly difficult, right? They're, They're spending all this time in school. They're incurring massive student debt. They're spending their days indoors dissecting cadavers when they could be at the beach. What on earth are they up to? Well, if you ask them, they will tell you. And you won't waste any time wondering whether they have some other motive that bears no resemblance to what they say. I mean, There might be some diversity of reasons, but 90% of medical students will give you more or less the same story. They'll say that they want to help people, that they want a meaningful career, where they know they're doing good in the world. They want a high prestige career. They want to be paid well. Okay? And they might have scientific interests in biology and medical research. You'll hear answers like this. And these answers make sense of their behavior. You won't hear someone say, I wanted to be a professional football player and found that I just wasn't quite good enough to turn pro. And so I decided to find the thing that was closest to the thrill of sacking a quarterback. And so I became a dermatologist. That wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't make sense to imagine that was the underlying motive. So, why do jihadists do what they do? Well, they are telling us ad nauseum. They're telling us even when we don't ask. And a magazine like Dabiq advertises their concerns and aspirations with utter clarity. And you might want to say it's just propaganda. And it is Propaganda but it only works as propaganda because many Muslims share these aspirations and concerns and believe the same doctrines. To call it propaganda doesn't mean that it's dishonest. For these ideas to successfully recruit people means that they find these ideas compelling. So whether Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi believes every word in this magazine isn't the point. The point is that this material is a highly successful means of recruiting foreign-born jihadis. The point is that many people find these ideas persuasive. And that's not an accident. Now, recruiting and inspiring jihadis overseas is obviously different from getting Iraqis and Syrians to fight for ISIS at home. And there's no question that many locals have been recruited out of fear. Fear of Shiites with whom they've been locked in a sectarian civil war, and fear of what ISIS will do to them if they don't support the caliphate. So who knows what percentage of local Sunnis really support the extreme Salafi jihadism of ISIS. It's probably a terrifying percentage, but it's not everyone. But here we're talking about the spread of Islamism and jihadism globally. So we're talking about persuasion. We're talking about the power of ideas. We're talking about a worldview that must be argued for and which some percentage of Muslims in any society will find compelling. And when you read this magazine, you find that, above all, jihadis are concerned about religious error. They really are concerned about the deviance of Christianity, which they consider a form of paganism, and about rival interpretations of Islam. And needless to say, they're horrified by secularism and atheism and homosexuality. They're concerned about the worship of anything beyond the single reality of Allah, whether it's the worship of Jesus or the Virgin Mary, or more metaphorically, things like money and pleasure and the arts and science. And the writers of this magazine go on at great length about how irrational it is to believe that a world as orderly as ours could have arisen from chaos. They give a long argument from design that is at least as lucid or as silly, depending on your view as any offered by the Discovery Institute. They consider every sign of order in our world, including the beauty of nature and the cuteness of babies and the neurobiology of vision and the details of energy metabolism in the body and the functioning of our immune systems, as well as the faculty of reason itself, to be evidence of a benevolent creator. On their account, the harmony between man and nature cannot help but attest to the reality of a just God. And this is spelled out in great detail in a magazine that prominently celebrates the indiscriminate slaughter of innocent people. To read this magazine is to discover that the oft-mocked line that was delivered by George Bush in his Texas drawl, they hate us for our freedom, is actually true. It is especially true if you include freedom of speech and belief. And those among you who think that they must have some other motive, that they must hate us for our foreign policy, as any rational people would in the aftermath of colonialism, well, you're simply wrong, and dangerously so, as they make absolutely clear. So everything that has been said and written by people like Noam Chomsky and Robert Pape and Glenn Greenwald and the dozens of prominent Muslim apologists about the motivations of jihadists, this whole pornography of self-doubt that they've been peddling for more than a decade, All of this is pure delusion. The people who are attracted to the jihadist cause are actually concerned about the work of Darwin and Marx and Nietzsche and Durkheim and Weber and Freud, who they call, the engineers of Western decadence. They are revolted by the, quote, sodomite pride they see on display in the West. There's a testimonial from a European convert To Islam, that's worth pondering. A woman, actually. And she talks about what it was like to convert in Finland and about how Christianity never made any sense to her. Because, of course, it doesn't make any sense. Jesus is both a man and the Son of God and God Himself. He's divine and all powerful, and yet He gets crucified and humiliated. This is ridiculous. Christians haven't been able to make sense of the Trinity for 2,000 years. Islam actually is more straightforward than this, which is a real advantage. There's just God, and you are his slave. Get with the program or burn in hell. The magazine actually contains a long article on biblical criticism that does a very good job of dismantling Christian doctrine. The level of theological concern these people have, the absolute primacy of their claim to being metaphysically correct, is really impossible to exaggerate. They care about nothing else. There's only one question that makes any sense. How can you avoid hell and get into paradise after you die? That question is the black hole at the center of their worldview that sucks everything into it. So this Finnish woman, who was born Christian, writes, What struck me most as I was reading the Quran were the verses about hellfire and the punishment in the hereafter. End quote which isn't a surprise, obviously, because the whole point of the Quran is to admonish you to submit to Allah or else go to hell. And she talks about how she converted to Islam and how her parents disapproved. And then she married a Muslim man and had a child. And then the happy family decamped to the caliphate. And then she writes, quote, I can't even describe the feeling when you finally cross that border and enter the lands of the caliphate. It is such a blessing from Allah to be able to live under the caliphate. There are so many people who made several attempts to come but just haven't been able to make it yet. Of course, when you come to the caliphate, after sacrificing everything for the sake of Allah, you'll continue to be tested. You're going to see hardships and trials. But every day, you're thankful to Allah for allowing you to perform hijrah. That's migration. And to live under the sharia. Life in the Islamic State is such a blessing. You face difficulties and hardship. You're not used to the food or the change of life. You may not know the local language. You hear bombings and the children may get scared. But none of that takes away from the gratitude you have towards Allah for allowing you to be here. Also, unless you're living here, you don't realize what kind of life you had before. The life here is so much more pure. When you're in Dar al-Kufar, the lands of disbelief, you're exposing yourself and your children to so much filth and corruption. You make it easy for Satan to lead you astray. Here you're living a pure life, and your children are being raised with plenty of good influence around them. They don't need to be ashamed of their religion. They are free to be proud of it, and are given the proper creed right from the start. After four months of being here, my son was martyred, and this was yet another blessing. Every time I think about it, I wonder to myself, if I stayed in Dar al Kufar, what kind of end would he have had? What would have happened to him? Alhamdulillah, praise be to God. He was saved from all that. And what could be better than him being killed for the cause of Allah? Obviously, it's not easy. But I ask Allah to allow us to join him. End quote. Well, that's a fairly chilling passage. I'm going to read it again, because you weren't ready for it. As you listen again, assume that this is a psychologically normal person who simply believes in the reality of martyrdom and paradise. Which is to say, she believes that this life is fundamentally unimportant. It's merely a test of faith. Believe the wrong thing and you will go to hell for eternity. Believe the right thing and you'll go to paradise. Eternity is all that matters. I'll read the relevant part again. Of course, when you come to the caliphate, after sacrificing everything for the sake of Allah, you'll continue to be tested. You're going to see hardships and trials. But every day you're thankful to Allah for allowing you to perform hijrah and to live under Sharia. Life in the Islamic State is such a blessing. You face difficulties and hardship. You're not used to the food or the change of life. You may not know the local language. You hear bombings and the children may get scared. But none of that takes away from the gratitude you have towards Allah. If you'd like to continue listening to this podcast, you'll need to subscribe at samharris.org you'll get access to all full-length episodes of the Making Sense podcast and to other subscriber-only content, including bonus episodes and AMAs and the conversations I've been having on the Waking Up app. The Making Sense podcast is ad-free and relies entirely on listener support. And you can subscribe now at samharris.org.